You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. God's perfect judgment. So back up to verse 3 and look what the Bible says. This is David speaking. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You've sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. So David is basically saying here, God, I'm on your side. That's the right side because those who are not on your side are your enemies. You are opposed to them and it's not going to turn out well for them. They stumble, perish before your presence. He says, you've sat on the throne, verse 4, giving righteous judgment. So you always execute perfect judgment over those who are opposed to you. Verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. And so David's point is this. It's not wise to be opposed to God. Because one day in his sovereign way and in his sovereign time, he will deal with that opposition. And he will judge rightly and with perfect justice. And look what it says. Fast forward down to verse 15. This theme continues on. The nations have sunk in the pit they made, in the net they hid. Their own foot has been caught. So he's speaking here of the nations that are opposed to the one true God. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. In other words, they will, they will reap what they have sown, which is a, a law that God has built to do the fabric of the universe, that, that what you sow, you will also reap. And that's God carrying out his judgment. Then he says in verse 17, The wicked shall return to Sheol, the place of the dead, all the nations that forget God. So the point is this. Because God is a righteous judge, he will deal with every enemy. It's not wise to be on the wrong side. It's not wise to be opposed to God. So the Lord is a perfectly righteous judge. He always carries out just penalties for rebellion against him. He always deals with it perfectly. Which leads to number three. He's eternal ruler of all. He judges perfectly. But you need to remember this. The Lord is good. He's not despotic. He's not a, 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 a tyrannical, cruel, oppressive leader who is holding on to power. He is a king who has all power, but also exercises that power through the attribute of his goodness. He's a good king. And we see this in verse 9. First of all, notice this king offers refuge. Verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. So I love this. He's speaking here of, of enemies, those opposed to God, but he's saying this. If you want to, you can run to God and he'll be your refuge. He'll defend you. He'll watch over you. He'll, he'll keep you in his care. He offers refuge. 
In other words, if you choose to trust the one true God instead of being opposed to the one true God, you will enter into a relationship with that God whereby he spreads his wings over your life. Which leads to the next point. He will never forsake his people. Look what it says in verse 10. Those who know your name, those personally related to you, put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And then, look what it says in verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction for those who hate me. O you, lift me up from the gates of death. So David's saying, I'm on your side. I've, I've run to you for refuge and shelter. You're my stronghold. I know you personally. I'm seeking your face. And I'm in your hands. You are pouring out your grace upon me. I've experienced your goodness. And so it's good news, isn't it? That the king of the universe, the perfect judge of all humanity, has offered sinners like you and me an opportunity to draw near and know him personally. And that opportunity is found in his son, Jesus Christ. Even though we're all sinners, God sent his son Jesus to this earth to come and take the punishment for our sin, the punishment we deserve, so that if we place our faith and trust in Christ, we can be forgiven of our sin and then brought into a relationship with this king, a relationship with a holy, righteous God, and then he will be our shelter. He will be our refuge. He will be the one that watches over us. The Lord is good. There's an old song by Michael Card, a, a great songwriter. And he's talking about this idea of knowing that the king of the universe is, is, is your savior. He, he writes these words. To be so completely guilty and given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and find a savior there. This king is a saving king if you'll run to him, if you will embrace him through his son, Jesus Christ. And so what kind of king is our God? He's the eternal ruler of all. He's a perfectly righteous judge, and he is good. He's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he is omnibenevolent. He is good. Man, let me show you a quick verse that speaks to this. I love this. Over in Isaiah Chapter 33. Turn there with me. Isaiah 33. Hold your place in Psalm 9. Isaiah 33. So years ago I read the book John Adams by David McCullough. Anybody ever read that book? John Adams? Yeah, good. Wonderful book. And um, I, the thing that, that I remember the most about that book is the, the intricate details about how the founding fathers, with their, with their brilliant minds, put together our current form of government. You know, we have three branches, right? You learned this in, in civics in high school. You have the judicial branch, Supreme Court. You have the legislative branch, which is the Congress. You have the executive branch, which is uh, the President of the United States. You have three branches, and there are checks and balances between the three branches. And when you look back through history and you look at how they put all of that together, it's just, it was just, they were just brilliant, brilliant men. I believe that the Lord was helping them, of course. But they were, they were brilliant, brilliant folks. 
And I think about those three branches of power, executive, legislative, judicial. And, and I came across this verse one day, and it jumped off the page. It's Isaiah 33, verse 22. Look what it says. Isaiah 33, verse 2. For the Lord is our judge, that's judicial. The Lord is our lawgiver, that's legislative. The Lord is our king, that's executive. He will save us. In other words, God is all three branches in one, amen? That's the kind of ruler he is. That's the way he exercises authority over the universe. He's judge, he's lawgiver, he's executive. He is king, and I'm so glad that he is good. So that's what kind of king our God is. Which leads to the second question. We're going to answer this and then we'll be through tonight. The second question is, what does our king deserve? Or how should we respond to a king like that? How, how should we live in relationship with a king like that? Well, there are four answers to that question, again, that come from Psalm 9. First of all, our king deserves wholehearted gratitude. Wholehearted gratitude. You notice how the psalm starts? I will give thanks, that's gratitude, to the Lord. Notice divine name, capital L, capital R, R, capital uh, O-R-D, the divine name. I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. This is not half-hearted gratitude. This is not David going through the motions. This is not David being grateful on Thanksgiving Day. This is David Um, being overwhelmed by this sense of of thanksgiving in light of who God is and how God had blessed him with his grace and his mercy. In the midst of the difficulty in which David lived, David knew, hey, the king of the universe is my stronghold. He's my refuge. I know him personally. He knows me by name. I know him. He's my Lord. He's Yahweh. And I will give thanks to him with my whole heart. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, if we consider our own sinfulness and nothingness, more on that a little bit later, if we consider our own sinfulness and nothingness, we must feel that every work of preservation, forgiveness, conversion, deliverance, sanctification, etc., which the Lord has wrought for us or in us is a marvelous work. If we realize, like we talked about with Psalm 8 last week, if we realize that we are small in the big scheme of things, and yet God has set his favor upon us, then we should be filled with gratitude. Hey, quick question, quick question. Don't answer it out loud. When's the last time you told God thank you for something? Number two, what does our king deserve? Passionate worship. Passionate worship. I'll give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, with my whole heart. I'll recount all your wonderful deeds. In other words, David's keeping a a record, a catalog of his wonderful deeds. As the old hymn says, he's counting his many blessings. Then in verse 2, he says, I will be glad and exult in you. Exult means I will will, uh, lift up your name. I will will exalt your name. I will exult in you. And he says, I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. El Elyon is the Hebrew there. O Most High, you who are over every other uh, ruler in the universe. You are almighty. But notice here, uh, David is, is responding to our great king with passionate worship. And look what he says down in verse 11. 
Again, he's calling for passionate worship, singing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. So David's response to God's greatness, God's majesty, God's goodness, God's mercy is the fact that he just wanted to praise him. He just wanted to sing praises to his great name. And I, you know, I really appreciate David as a, as a man because David was a man's man. He was a warrior. Like, you know, he, he, was a, he was a tough guy, right? He was a man. And yet he had this tender heart of worship. He just loved to sing. He played the harp. He, 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 he just had this, this, this response to God where he wanted to worship and sing praises to his name. And so how should we respond to our God? Passionate worship. Passionate worship. I hope that you make a focus of your life or focus your life in on worshiping our great God. Taking words uh, that are good words about God and, and, and singing them back to Him. That's why it's important we get together uh, on, on Sundays where we get together and, and our music ministry gives you opportunities to take some words and, and say them to God, to, to praise His name in response to what He has done for us. That's, by the way, when, when, when we come to a worship service, our first thought should not be, what are we singing today? Our first thought should be, how is this helping me express myself to God? What are these words I'm saying to God? Are these words I'm saying to God, are they pleasing to Him? Are they true about God? Are they, are they, are they exalting Him? I heard somebody say this the other day. I actually heard a pastor say this. Um, he had a church member say, oh, I didn't like the worship today. And the pastor said, well, we weren't worshiping you. We're taking our words, and who are we directing them to? Who? Our great king. Our great king. And so, passionate worship. Number three, passionate worship. Number three is absolute trust. Look what it says in verse 10. Verse 10. Those who know your name, who know you personally, do what? Put their trust in you. Those who know your name... Put their trust in you. And I love the next sentence. For you, O Lord, again, divine name. He knew him personally. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So I can trust you, God, because you never let me down. I can trust you because you will keep on watching over me. You'll never forsake me. And listen, I can say this to you tonight on the authority of the word of God. You listen to me? It's a strong statement, but it's true. God has never let you down. Ever. Now, I'm not saying you haven't gone through difficult things. I, haven't, I didn't say you haven't gone through hard things. But I'm telling you, God has never let you down. And God, when you trust Him, will even take the bad stuff, the hard stuff, and work it together for your good. How can you lose? So just keep trusting Him. He won't let you down. Keep trusting Him. He'll never forsake you. Keep trusting Him. He won't leave you by yourself. Keep trusting Him over and over, day by day. Keep trusting Him. He's a great King. Listen, He is worthy of your absolute trust. Absolute trust. And then number four, 
What does our king deserve? He deserves wholehearted gratitude. He deserves passionate worship. He deserves absolute trust. Number four, he deserves to be shared. There's a theme throughout this entire psalm. Look in verse 1. I'll give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I'll recount all of your wonderful deeds. So he's here speaking. I'm speaking about what you have done, God. Your, your, your wonderful deeds, your majestic deeds. And then look in verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in Zion. And look at this next sentence. Tell among the peoples his deeds. Now, again, people speaks of nations, different ethnicities. So David's saying, our king is so good, he's too good to keep confined in the borders of Israel and confined among the, the Jewish people. He's such a great king over the entire universe, we need to let other nations know about him. Which, by the way, that was the purpose of the Jews. You say, did God choose the Jews so he could have this special uh, group and no one else could, could, could uh, relate to him? No, that's not the, the point at all. God chose the Jews, and he says in, in Exodus 19, they were to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, they were to make him known to all the other nations so they could come worship him too. And guess what it says about the church over in 1 Peter chapter 3. The Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. It says that we are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. That we should proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So just like the Jews, God's chosen nation, we are to make God known to all the people that don't know him. We're to tell people about how good he is. Is And then look in verse 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men, Selah. He's praying that other nations would come to a right understanding of who God is, that they might fear you, and who they are. If you look there in your notes... People need a right understanding of who he is and who they are so that they will see their need to embrace his mercy. Now here's what's interesting. Notice in verse 19 and verse 20 the word man. Arise, O Lord, verse 19, let not man prevail. Then at the end of verse 20, let the nations know that they are but men. That's not the typical general word for man in the Hebrew language. The typical Hebrew word is Adam, where we get Adam from. That's the, the general word for man. This is the word Enosh. And the word Enosh speaks of human weakness and frailty. That's what this word means. So David's saying, Lord, I pray that you would move in such a way that the nations would understand they are weak and frail. And they need to fear you. Because if they come into a right understanding of who you are and who they are, They'll see their need to embrace your mercy, to run to your salvation, to embrace your deliverance. On his own, man is dust and a vapor, guilty before a holy God. And humanity must realize this so that they will fear God and see their need for a Savior. David's praying, God, I'd come, I pray that the nations would come to that Realization. They must realize that they are weak, 
frail, needy, guilty humans, and you're the one true God. And they must be rightly related to you through your son Jesus if they're going to know you and go to heaven when they die. And so what does our king deserve? He deserves to be shared, to be talked about, to be exalted in, to, 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 to be made much of. He deserves to be shared. Um, we do this instinctively with, with, with other things that are, that are good or we believe praiseworthy in our lives. I mean, some of us are like this with human rulers, right? When you find, a, when you find a, maybe someone in the political field and, and they, they hold to the right things and they're good leaders, you, 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 hey, you want to say, hey, look at this guy, he's good. Or she's good, you need to vote for them, right? We, we just talk about them like that. We're talking about the great king of the universe. Shouldn't we point to him? Because remember, he's judicial, legislative, executive, all in one. Amen? Um, I'm looking at you in this room. A lot of you are food evangelists. Right? You eat something that's good, and what do you do? You tell somebody about it, right? How good it was, how they need to go get it. And uh, you're food evangelists. I am too. I'm, I'm a, I, I love to eat. Food evangelists. We eat some. We're excited about it. Or a sports evangelist or whatever. We, we love to, to direct other people's attention to things we believe are praiseworthy. How about the king of the universe? Shouldn't we direct people's attention to him? That's David's point. He's a great king, a great king, a great king. And we ought to talk about his wonderful deeds among all the nations. And so Psalm 9 is a reminder of what kind of king God is and what that king deserves from our lives. A challenging psalm. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.